Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So the topic that we're going to talk about is the introduction to the incoherence of the philosophers, because Ghazali in that uh, really gives us a good outline about what he's trying to do within in the book and who the book is about and um, the method he's going to use to try to achieve his objectives in the book and exactly what those objectives are. All that stuff is pretty important for understanding the book. And there's some interesting philosophical questions that arise in it too. He is now going to tell us, right? I have seen a group who, believing in themselves in possession of a distinctiveness from companion and peer by virtue of a superior quick wit and intelligence, have rejected the Islamic duties regarding acts of worship, disdain prohibited things, belittled the devotions and ordinances prescribed by the divine law, not talking in the face of its uh, prohibitions and restrictions. On the contrary, they have entirely cast off the reins of religion through multifarious beliefs, following therein a troop, quote, who repel away from God's way, intending to make it crooked, who are indeed disbelievers in the hereafter. So he's talking about some people who are, who are um, basically what uh, dropping out of uh, following the rules of Islam, right? on the basis of the fact that they think they're smarter than other people, right? That's what he says. And uh, that that somehow makes them above following the rules that everybody else has to follow. Yeah. Right. Now what he says, there's no basis for their unbelief other than traditional conventional imitation, like the imitation of Jews and Christians, since their upbringing and that of their offspring has followed a course other than the religion of Islam. Their fathers and forefathers having also followed conventional imitation. Taqlid. Traditional imitation. So he's talking about a group of people who are philosophers or who at least think they're philosophers. And now he's telling us that really they don't, they don't have any basis for their, what he calls their unbelief, right? They're leaving uh, religion. Other than taqlid, which is kind of a big charge for against philosophers because they're the ones supposedly who um, build themselves as the free thinkers, right? The ones who follow the evidence and logic and stuff. He, clay, he, he accuses them of taqlid and compares them to right, Jews and Christians and then t telling us that Jews and Christians upbringing and that of their offspring followed a course other than Islam. Their fathers and forefathers having also followed this taqlid and no basis other than speculative investigation, an outcome of their stumbling over the tales of sophistical doubts that divert from the direction of truth, and their being deceived by embellished imaginings akin to the glitter of the mirage. As has happened to groups of speculative thinkers, followers of heretical innovation and whim and their investigation of beliefs and opinions. So it's interesting here. He seems to kind of assume that if somebody actually doesn't follow taqlid. Well, there's a combination of things here, right? There's taqlid, which is basically following somebody on the basis of authority only, um, or following a way of belief that you grew up with just because you grew up in that way. And it's a combination of that and this kind of speculative investigation or sort of sort of loose thinking. So somebody, you know, thinks loosely about something or kind of makes a lot of mistakes in trying to figure out something on their own comes up with a half-baked idea and then announces that half-baked idea and then other people follow that on the basis of taqlid, right? 
that's how he's kind of describing this group of philosophers, eh, which is really in the opposite to philosophers' usual um, self-conception or how they try to you know, advertise themselves as the uniquely or sort of preeminently free thinkers and clear thinkers. So then he says, the source of their unbelief is in their hearing high-sounding names such as Socrates, Hippocrates, Plato, Aristotle, and their likes, and the exaggeration and misguidedness of groups of their followers in describing their minds. So it's like these people hear these famous names and they want to be like those guys. And so they follow ideas which they think were said by Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Hippocrates, but were not. They hear their likes and the exaggeration and misguidedness of groups of their followers in describing their minds. So he's blaming some followers of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Hippocrates of exaggerating or uh, misunderstanding them. The exactitude of their geometrical, logical, natural, and metaphysical sciences. And then describing these as being alone by reason of excessive intelligence and acumen capable of extracting these hidden things. It is also in hearing what these followers say about their masters, namely that the concurrent, the concurrent with the sobriety of their intellect and the abundance of their merit is their denial of revealed laws and religious confessions and the rejection of the details of religious and sectarian teaching, believing them to be man-made laws and embellished tricks. So what do we got here? It seems now he's talking about a group of people who claim to follow these big name philosophers from the ancient Greek past and who actually follow uh, some who are who exaggerated, right? Who made exaggerated claims about these guys, saying that they are sort of uniquely able to know uh, mysterious things and at the same time falsely claim that they deny religion. Uh, so it seems like the implication here is that Ghazali saying these big name ancient Greek philosophers didn't really deny religion and didn't really claim to have this sort of special super knowledge that nobody else has. Whereas followers of these guys are, are sort of trying to make a cult out of them, sort of make a cult out of their names and then basically have a misunderstanding of what these philosophers said and then turn it into a kind of a taqlid, right? That's sort of a different kind of, almost, you know, we could say like a kind of a different religion, right? But one based completely on blind following. So he's even talking about the kind of, um, oops, psychology behind it here. He goes on to say, when this struck their hearing, that which was reported of the philosopher's beliefs, finding agreement with their nature, they adorned themselves with the embracing of unbelief, siding with the throng of the virtuous, as they claim, affiliating with them, exalting themselves above aiding the masses and the commonality, and disdaining to, com be to be content with the religious beliefs of their forebears. They have done this thinking that the show of cleverness in abandoning the traditional imitation of what is true by embarking on the imitation of the false is a beautiful thing being unaware that moving from one mode of imitation to another is folly and confusion. Right, so he's saying that basically, right, that inside them, that's what's their agreement with their nature, right, that apparently they're sort of 
arrogant, vain type people who, when they hear these exaggerated uh, stories about ancient philosophers, think that if they associate themselves with those with those uh, you know stories as told about the philosophers, will become like you know be better than the rest of the people around them, yeah, and kind of be above them. So they think that that will show that they're smarter than other people by associating themselves or attaching themselves with this sort of imaginary story of that's been told of ancient philosophers, but that they're actually just blind following as much as anybody else that they might be accused of blind following. So here we have, let's say, Islam, which for Ghazali, of course, is the true religion and is the truth. So if you're a blind follower of Islam, then you're a blind follower of something which is true. Whereas if you are a blind follower of this sort of false version of philosophy, then you would be a blind version, a blind follower of something false. So he's saying these people are sort of rejecting being a blind follower of, of a true thing to become a blind follower of a false thing. And would they think that they're actually, you know, of course, being clever and not being a blind follower like they think everyone else is. Is it a fair thing for Ghazali to say? I suppose it depends on who he's talking about. Yeah? Is this something that other people think about philosophy, do you think? You think you're smarter than everyone else, but all you do is just, you know, repeat what your philosophy teacher tells you. That American guy coming in with his... The older you get, the less humble you get. That could be. That shouldn't be the way it is. It seems like it should be the opposite, yeah? Maybe we get more, we, we get more set in our ways when we get older. Yeah, our ways of thinking get sort of like pretty much ingrained. And when we're younger, we're open to, we're more open to, we're still sort of learning, right? Or our minds are still more flexible. And we're open to experience and stuff. And that might seem kind of like a, a kind of arrogance, is it? Because it seems like people are less open to sort of changing their mind or thinking about things in a different way uh, than they were before. I suppose, right? That's one way to look at it. Is there an, an, a, possible another, a possible other point of view to explore? What if somebody were dis to disagree with you? What do you think they would say? What might they say? What if uh, what if experience sort of leads you? I mean, like so, like when you're young, there's all these different paths you can go and try out, right? Doesn't it sort of make sense that you know after you're older, you've tried a, little, a lot of those different paths, and if you found that some of them suck, right, or they they lead to a dead end, or they lead to a pitfall, you know? So you've kind of been there, done that, and when you're young, you haven't been there and done that. So you're more willing to explore these places and then you find older people saying, you just don't go there, right? And it just appears like they're closed-minded, but maybe they sort of know it's a waste of time. If they're wise, they'll probably know that there's no way they can tell you that you have to go down yourself and find out, <laughs> right? <laughs> they might come off as, you know, sort of uh, maybe you know, dismissive about your thoughts because, you know, they've already tried that and it didn't work. At least it didn't work for them. Now, the fact that it didn't work for them doesn't mean that it's going to be the same for you. And they might only think that they've been down the same path and they haven't really. They've just been down a lot of paths. And so they kind of assume, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I've tried that before, you know. He goes on to talk about basically how silly it is, how silly it is to leave, to abandon the truth, right? Who adorns himself with the abandonment of truth 
It is traditionally believed by the hasty embracing of the false is true, accepting it without reliable report and verification. The imbeciles among the masses, he calls them imbeciles, right? <laughs> like among the masses, there are imbeciles, right? Maybe stupid people, or let's say less intelligent. Okay, so the ignorant people among the masses stand detached from the infamy of this abyss. Regular, uneducated, ignorant people who just follow what they're taught without, you know, sort of looking at it critically, I guess. They don't suffer the actual real stupidity of these philosophers, for there is no craving in their nature to become clever by emulating those who follow the ways of error. They don't want to, they don't want to look like they're smarter than everybody else by being different and following some other people that have some other ideas and they try to make that off as that means that they're better than others. Imbecility, right? I guess this ignorance is thus nearer salvation than smartness severed from religious belief. Blindness is closer to wholeness than cross-eyed sight. Hmm. So somebody who's blind and then follows somebody else who leads them on the right path is better than somebody who's cross-eyed and tries to go his own way. When I perceived this vein of folly throbbing within these dimwits, how <laughs> did they translate into dimwit? Then uh, I took it upon myself to write this book in refutation of the ancient philosophers, to show the incoherence of their belief and the contradiction of their word in matters relating to metaphysics to uncover the dangers of their doctrine and its shortcomings, which in truth ascertainable are objects of laughter for the rational and a lesson for the intelligent. I mean the kinds of diverse beliefs and opinions they particularly hold that set them aside from the populace and the common run of men. I will do this relating at the same time their doctrine as it actually is, so as to make it clear to those, sorry, so as to make it clear to those who embrace unbelief through imitation that all significant thinkers, past and present, agree in believing in God and the last day. That their differences reduce to matters of detail extraneous to those two pivotal points. That no one has denied these two beliefs other than a remnant of perverse minds who hold lopsided opinions, who are neither noticed nor taken into account in the deliberations of the speculative thinkers but who are instead counted only among the company of evil devils and in the throng of the dim-witted and the inexperienced. So he's telling us now he's going to show that the actual philosophers agreed, I mean the true philosophers, right? He says all the significant thinkers agree in believing in God and that will show these other guys, right, who think they're philosophers, I guess, and follow them through some kind of blind imitation and desire to look like they're smarter than everyone else. Uh, it will show them their misunderstanding. Now he's going to tell us about who are the philosophers, right? Because there are so many different philosophers. They're not just one, uh, one theory or one doctrine. Let it be known that to plunge into narrating the differences among the philosophers would involve too long a tale. For their floundering about is lengthy, their disputes many, their views are spread apart, their ways divergent and convergent. Let us then restrict ourselves to showing the contradictions in the views of their leader, who is the philosopher par excellence and the first teacher. 
For he, as they claim, organized and refined their silences, removed the redundant in their views, and selected what is closest to the principles of their capricious beliefs, namely Aristotle. He has answered all his predecessors, even his teacher, known among them as the divine Plato, apologizing for disagreeing with his teacher by saying, Plato is a friend and truth is a friend, but truth is a truer friend. So he's given something of like a different account of philosophy than we say Al-Farabi did. So, you know, remember we talked about Al-Farabi and he sort of talked about philosophy as the true version of religious truth, right? And the philosophers as the people who understand this on its own terms as opposed to the metaphorical ways in which Revelation sort of explains um, these truths for, you know, the masses. Uh, and that view sort of makes it as if philosophy is one thing. And in fact, they, even Al-Farabi wrote a book talking about the unity of Plato and Aristotle's philosophy, right? And they tried to really sort of explain how these two different philosophers with their different theories are actually one theory, one set of beliefs. And Ghazali here is, you know, here contradicting that and talking about how the truth is that all the philosophers from before in the ancient Greek times had very different theories and disagreed with each other. And of course, if you're a person who thinks that, you know, say like philosophy is, is, is bringing the truth of things, then how can it be that there are so many different philosophies and that they disagree with each other? Even so that Aristotle disagreed with Plato and he said that Plato is a friend and truth is a friend, but it, truth is a truer friend than Plato. So that leaves the problem. If we're gonna like give a critical analysis of philosophy, well, which philosophy are we gonna choose? And so he's saying, well, he's choosing Aristotle because the philosophers mostly agree that Aristotle was the the best of them, right? The one who sort of had the most complete understanding and sort of solved the most problems and has the most comprehensive theory, which is, you know, pretty much the case. So, he says there, right, we have transmitted this story to let it be known that there is neither firm foundation nor perfection in the doctrine they hold and that they judge in terms of supposition and surmise without verification or certainty. They use the appearance of their mathematical and logical sciences as evidential proof for the truth of their metaphysical sciences, using this as a gradual enticement for the weak in mind. So, you know, what we had this, uh, remember if you took, you know, logic, uh, introduction to logic, and we found it's pretty simple if you have these rules of valid inference, we can show that, you know, uh, if, if we, it's easy to use the rules to, to see if your argument is valid so that if the premises are true, then the conclusion has to be true. And then the problem was, well, but how do we know that the premises are true with certainty? And remember, we had already talked about the uh, philosopher Al-Farabi Ibn Sina, the notion of demonstration. And it's actually, you know, Aristotelian notion, the idea that if you have a valid argument with premises that are ultimately rooted in first principles that are self-evidently certain, you will have certain knowledge, right? That was kind of the aim. Now, that's, the, that's a sort of notion of demonstrative truth, which may be considered the aim of a philosopher. Whether philosophy or philosophers have actually achieved that kind of knowledge is another question. Um, might, might argue whether Aristotle himself claims 
to have achieved that, right? But it's a concept of a, a target, like an, like an aim or an aspiration. It's a notion of knowledge which is real, or a standard of knowledge which is real, that may or may not actually be achieved in this or that context or subject matter. But there does seem to be a claim among, or at least Ghazali is looking, uh, ta- speaking as if there's a group of people who are claiming that philosopher have achieved this kind of certain knowledge with regard to metaphysics, right? With regard to the knowledge that uh, of, of things and the unseen or the knowledge of things, the basic categories of being that lie under the phenomenal world that we observe. And that, the, that, that their certainty is, is in those sciences and metaphysics is just like certainty in mathematics, right? So mathematics we can certainly we, we can be absolutely certain like that two plus two is four or if you remember in the other context uh, Ghazali had written in Munkad Min al-Dalal that you know certain knowledge or al-Maliyakin is like when somebody knows that ten is more than three and they're so certain that ten is more than three that even if someone were to throw down a stick and turn it into a snake and tell them that three is more than ten they might be amazed about how the person can do that kind of miracle, but that will not prove to them or even shake their certainty that 10 is actually more than 3. So mathematical certainty is this sort of high, right, the standard of knowledge for the philosopher. And then they claim to have that kind of certainty with regard to metaphysics because of the fact that, as they claim, they use the same methods in metaphysics that they do in mathematics and logic, right, basically the logical methods. So the idea there is that since we have these methods, we are able to get this sort of certain knowledge in metaphysics. And what Ghazali wants to do, he's going to say in this book, is to look at the arguments that they bring and to show how they don't, in fact, reach that level of certainty. So what he's saying here is that this sort of success in mathematics and logic and the ability to achieve certainty in those things that the philosopher sort of show or that people see when we import, right, these Greek uh, texts and Greek, uh, you know, sciences and, and into the Arabic tradition, that, you know, that the, sin, that, 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 that the spectacle of their being able to reach that certainty in mathematics and logic makes people think that they must also have reached that level of certainty in metaphysics. But in fact, you know, he's going to show that's not the case. So I suppose we could make an analogy between the two since parts of, you know, where we mentioned Ghazali had talked about in Munkad Man al-Dalal, about the guy who turns a stick into a snake, right? So we have here one feat, which is that, you know, they were able to achieve this really brilliant sort of certainty in mathematics and logic, which is kind of, you know, really impressive, like somebody throwing down a stick and turning it into a snake, although it's actually an intellectual achievement instead of just a kind of a magic trick. And on the basis of association, right, the assumption is, oh, in metaphysics, they must also have the same certainty. So when they come around and say that, oh, we have also proved just like the, you know, just like these mathematical theorems that we've proved um, in geometry and so forth, we've also proved, for example, that, you know, the world is eternal, um, that God doesn't act by choice, and some other kinds of things like that, uh, that um, people will think that they must have that knowledge and sort of that authority on those issues because of the other kind of success they've had with 
mathematics, which is really not a logical inference. It's just a, sort of an imaginative or associative inference, right? He did this thing really good, therefore he must do this other thing really good as well, and it may not be true. The only way to know is to look at the arguments carefully and then review and, and, and critically examine them. Mm -hmm. And obviously Ghazali is motivated to do that because the conclusions that the philosopher come uh, arrive with or that they claim they've arrived at with demonstratively <clears throat> with regard to creation and God and these other metaphysical topics contradict for Ghazali, according to Ghazali, uh, they contradict what uh, Muslim uh, beliefs should be, right? Uh, or what uh, Islam says about these things. So he also says here, moreover, the words of the translators of the words of Aristotle are not free from corruption and change. So Aristotle's works have been translated right into from Greek to Syriac and then to Arabic, right? So there's levels of translation and there's always issues about reporting like the uh, accuracy of that. So they require exegesis and interpretation so that this has aroused conflict among them. People have differed and that's true. There was like many, there was a, there's a commentary tradition on Aristotle and completely different interpretations of Aristotle between different pre-Islamic uh, commentators and also between Muslim commentators. So the most reliable transmitters, transmitters and verifiers among the philosophers of Islam, he says, are Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina. And so he's going to confine them himself. He says, let us then confine ourselves to refuting what these two have selected and deemed true of the doctrines. So basically by the philosopher, he means Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina. Because his main target is Aristotle, but he's going to look at the version of Aristotle or Aristotle as explained, you know, in the Arabic language by Muslim uh, philosopher. And so he's got his pick, right? So the, the two main authorities uh, on Aristotle, Aristotle or Aristotelian philosophy and philosophy in general are those, Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina. So he's basically focusing on those two. Because, again, as he said, there's so many different philosophers with different views, and it would be impossible. For that which they have abandoned and scorned to pursue, no one contests his error and needs no lengthy examination to refute. So he's just saying, you know, whatever those guys disagreed with, it's probably not worth talking about anyway. Like, we're going to pick the best of the best of the philosophers and their arguments, right? Because, of course, if we want to examine, we have to examine the best. And we wouldn't want to go and find the dumbest philosopher there is and then, like, look for his argument and easily, easily we can find how, you know, he made some many mistakes and then show, okay, we've refuted the philosophers when you pick the, the worst one. Ghazali's saying we, you know, we got to pick the best one. And that makes sense, totally. It makes a lot more sense than what people do a lot of times, try to, like, you know, have uh, debates with the, the dumbest uh, specimen from the group that you're, you know, debating with. Uh, he, he tells us now that there are three parts to this dispute. One part is where it's just verbal, right? It's it, the, where the dispute is only about the meaning of a word. And Ghazali is really not interested in disputing over the meaning of terms. He wants to dispute about the meanings, right? The reality. So basically he likes to try to clarify as much as possible what the terms are being used for so that you can avoid this kind of waste of time, which for him is a waste of time to dispute, where the dispute just reduces to how the word is used. So the example he gives here is that the philosopher claim or they describe God as a substance. 
I guess people might think that what they mean is a material substance, like God is a material thing. And I think Asherites might have thought that, or they sometimes might have interpreted this term substance in that way, because the Asherites have a term for that, or like their Adam, the Jauhar. Yeah. And Ghazali is saying this is not really a real dispute, because the only thing that philosophers mean by substance is that God exists on his own and doesn't depend on anything else to exist. And that's what they mean by substance. So it doesn't entail that God is a material thing or a body or something like that. So that's just a way to avoid a pointless debate over, you know, just because of the misunderstanding about how the word is used. And the other part, he says, uh, the second part is one where their doctrine does not clash with any religious principle and where it is not a necessity of the belief in the prophets and God's messengers. So that's a lot to dispute about it. So I'm going to read this one because this is pretty important. It's good to see his extra words here. An example of this is their statement. The lunar eclipse consists in the obliteration of the moon's light due to the interposition of the earth between it and the sun. The earth being a sphere surrounded by the sky on all sides. Thus, when the moon falls in the earth's shadow, the sun's light is severed from it. Another example is their statement. The solar eclipse means the presence of the lunar orb between the observer and the sun. This occurs when the sun and the moon are both at the two nodes at one degree. So this is astronomical knowledge, which was you know, brought in from the Greeks into the Arabic tradition. And so the philosophers are saying this, and this is the explanation of the eclipse uh, with regard to the ast- astronomical section of their, you know, of their knowledge of their sciences. And so Ghazali says, this topic is also one into the refutation of which we shall not plunge, since this serves no purpose. Whoever thinks that to engage in a disputation for refuting such a theory is a religious duty, harms religion and weakens it. For these matters rests on demonstrations, geometrical and arithmetical, that leave no room for doubt. So he's saying that the philosopher have certain proof about their explanation for the for the, for, the, for the lunar eclipse and the solar eclipse. Thus, when, one who studies these proofs and demonstrations and ascertains their proofs, deriving thereby information about the time of the two eclipses and their extent and duration, if someone was told that that's contrary to religion, then the person would not suspect the science because the proof is actually, you know, uh, foolproof. They would only suspect the religion. The harm inflicted on religion by those who defend it in a way not proper to it is greater than the harm caused by those who attack it in the way proper to it. As it has been said, a rational foe is better than an ignorant friend. And then he goes on, right, to talk about this uh, possible reason somebody might want to deny or think that Islam contradicts or that this explanation for the eclipses contradict Islam. If it is said that God's messenger, sallallahu said, the sun and moon are two of God's signs that are eclipsed neither for the death nor the life of anyone, should you witness such events, then hasten to the remembrance of God in prayer, which is a hadith, right? How then does this agree with what the philosophers state? And we say there is nothing in this that contradicts what they have stated, since there is nothing in it except the denial of the occurrence of the eclipse for the death or life of anyone, and the command to pray when it occurs. Why should it be so remote for the religious law that commands prayer at noon and sunset to command as recommendable prayer at the occurrence of an eclipse? 
If it is said that at the end of this tradition the Prophet said, But if God reveals himself to a thing, it submits itself to him, thereby proving that the eclipse is submission by reason of revelation, we answer, This addition is not soundly transmitted, and hence the one who transmitted must be judged as conveying what is false. The correctly related transition tradition is the one we have mentioned. How is this not so? For if the transmission of the addition were sound, then it would be easier to interpret it metaphorically rather than to reject matters <coughs> that are conclusively true. So basically he's saying here we have a hadith, right? And if the hadith appears to contradict what has been demonstratively proven, that is for him in this case the explanation for the lunar and solar eclipses, then in that case, the Hadith, well, we have to question the reliability of the transmission or we have to interpret it metaphorically. Then he goes on, the greatest thing in which the atheists rejoice is for the defender of religion to declare that these astronomical demonstrations and their like are contrary to religion. Thus, the atheist's path for refuting religion becomes easy if the likes of the above argument for defending religion are rendered a condition for its truth. So if, if Islam, in order for Islam to be true, it has to be false that the uh, lunar eclipse is caused by this earth coming between the sun and the moon, then it looks worse for it's basically you know, the bad day for Islam, <laughs> right? So he's saying the person who want to make this argument is not helping uh, Islam at all. And then the third one is where disputes pertain to one of the principles of religion, such as upholding the doctrine of the world's creation and of the positive attributes of the creator, demonstrating the resurrection of bodies, and so forth. So he's basically telling us here that, look, he's not here interested in refuting every single thing the philosopher said just because the philosopher said it and he wants to be against them. No. There are things, he said, first, which only come down to a difference in the way we use words. And so we should sort of be clear on how we use the terms. And if we understand how each group is using the terms, we can avoid the places where it only appears like we disagree, but we don't really because we're using the terms differently. And then the second one is things where they believe something which is not really... Well, that's interesting. It's, it's not just that it's the, that these, the second thing is not just where the thing doesn't really contradict uh, religion. It's where he's putting it this way, right? Where it may apparently contradict religion, given some interpretations of religious texts, but that the thing in question is absolutely proven to be demonstra demonstrably true, and that there's no possible way to deny it. I mean, he thinks that's the case with the eclipses. So <clears throat> if there's a case where we have an absolute scientific logical demonstration for something, then it's not possible that, right, that could contradict religion. And if there was some text from religion, like in this, for example, this hadith, which seems to contradict it, then, you know, that would have to be interpreted metaphorically. Or we just have to, let's say, place into doubt the reliability of the transmission. Yeah. So he does really give reason a place here. And he does think that there are things that can be logically and through reason demonstratively proven, independent of revelation. To the point that if, if somebody has a reading of revelation that seems to contradict that thing which is proven by reason, then at least that interpretation of the religious text cannot be taken, cannot be believed in, and it has to be interpreted differently 
you know, some metaphorical way, consistent with what reason actually proves, right? So the assumption is that if it seems that something that philosophy has arrived at or the people that have arrived at through reason and through inference seems to contradict, seems to really contradict what really is a principle of, of, of Islam, then, uh, then it must be that it's not really the case that it's demonstrably proven. So he's going to show that, right, by actually looking now at the philosopher's arguments for that. Uh, the examples that he gives here are the doctrine of the world's creation and time, or the, the doctrine of God's attributes that God really has, right, multiple different attributes, you know, like will and knowledge and so forth. So he's going to examine their arguments for these things, because these things really do touch on what he considers to be principles of religion. And he's going to show that their arguments are not valid, they're not demonstrative as they claim. And that's the basically, you know, how he's narrowing down and setting aside, you know, and, and basically focusing on what he thinks is the crucial thing. Again, which is crucial in two ways. First, because he thinks there's they don't have a demonstrative proof in the way they claim, as they in fact have in the terms of the eclipse, for example. And then secondly, because the issue about what the eclipse is does not actually touch on a fundamental principle of religion. It's not sort of a a standard or like a pillar of Islam to believe that something specific about the eclipse, you know, that maybe that the, that the moon goes down under the, under the earth and then bows or makes a jude to Allah and it comes up again. In the literal sense, this could be, this should be interpreted metaphorically in the sense that the moon actually uh, is under the control of God and submits to God's will and the motion that it makes. But the phenomenal motion that we observe is, you know, for him demonstrably proven so that can't be set into opposition with Islam because the hadith in question that people think it opposes is not so central to Islamic doctrine and can be interpreted metaphorically right so obviously it'd be very different for someone to say you know that this hadith about the moon going under the earth and, and making sujood is you know metaphorical then it would be for someone to say, oh, the, the proposition that God exists and there's one God is merely a metaphor, <laughs> right? If someone were to say that, then all of Islam would just be a metaphor and then it wouldn't really be, that would be basically saying Islam is false, yeah? So that's not, that's something that would have to be defended in, in, in rational terms and shown to be compatible with reason, right? Or at least we're gonna say shown that no demonstrative argument that it's false is available, right? That we cannot demonstrably, demonstratively prove that, that it's false. Right? In fact, this is one thing that you want to demonstratively prove is true. Although the philosopher, right, they do believe God exists and is one, right? But the sort of sense of oneness that they have in mind is, is different. 